morning trying to figure out. I, um, it's uh, great to have so many musicians, young musicians, all musicians, great to be led in worship today. So thanks to all of you. Uh, you know, over the, well, over the course of time, there have been tens of millions of speeches given, right, in all manner of settings. Going way back, we've had, uh, you know, tribal leaders sort of holding forth around a campfire. There have been military leaders who have rallied troops to get ready for battle. There have been um, politicians who have campaigned. There have been teachers who have instructed, professors who have lectured, lawyers who have argued, pastors who have preached, Uh, comedians who have entertained, there have been all kinds of words that have flowed in speeches throughout the course of time. We are looking today at what is arguably the most famous collection of words ever. Certainly, it's the most famous sermon ever given. It was given by uh, Christ, and it instantly was so... um, powerful and compelling and disruptive that it uh, sort of moved quickly alongside the uh, Psalm 23 and the Ten Commandments and eventually the Lord's Prayer as what would be the sort of the high watermarks of the Bible, the the most memorable passages. It comes um, shortly after Christ has called the Twelve. He spent the night in prayer. He then uh, selects the Twelve that will be his apostles And then we read that uh, he walked down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from them and healing them all. And then he moves into this sermon. Now, it's hard to know what uh, they thought they were going to hear. Um, We don't know if they were prepared for the shocking, radically disorienting, uh, upside-down, but beautifully sublime words that they were going to hear. But that is what they were treated to in this sermon. Before we look at the actual words that Christ said, let me just uh, make sure there's a few things that are clear. Four brief points. Number one, this sermon goes by two different names. Matthew's version is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, or Luke's version is called the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew notes that the people were sitting on a hill. Uh, Luke talks about Jesus standing on a level place. You could put those two together. Everyone could be seated on a hill. Jesus could be standing on a level place. And so some people have thought that what we have here is is different records of the same exact message. And that Matthew summarizes it one way and Luke summarizes it another. To be sure, all we have here is a summary. You can read through Matthew's summary in eight minutes. You can read through Luke's summary in two. Jesus spoke longer than that. So we're looking at a distillation of his teaching, and some would say this is the the one time he gave it. I would be in the camp that would say Jesus gave this message on more than one occasion, 
And uh, it was a bit of a keynote address for him as he went from village to village. And so uh, Matthew's recording one or parts of one, and Luke is recording parts of another. Second thing to realize uh, about this is that uh, the sermon has several pieces to it, uh, especially Matthew's, which is longer. What we're looking at today is called the Beatitudes. And the word beatitude refers to a little pithy proverb-like statement. Blessed are these people. The word beatitude comes to us from the Latin word beatudo, which means blessed. And it's just note this. It's, it's not making a promise. It's describing a present situation. So it's not saying, if you are meek, you will inherit the world. It's not saying, if you weep now, you will laugh. It's saying that, that you are blessed now if that is the state of your heart. Right? There's a blessing from God that attends to that. That'll be a little bit clearer as we push through here. Um, in this sermon, Jesus does several things. He, he not only um, gives us uh, sort of the, the genius of his teaching... We also are treated to his interpretation of the law. And in giving us his interpretation of the law, Jesus is going to reinforce one of the central aspects of the law, and that is to make it clear that we fall short of the standard. So the law, okay, the the code of ethics that was handed down by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, for the Jewish people, sort of a moral, civil, ceremonial package of rules, the law serves several functions. One of the functions of the law was to make it clear to the people that they needed God's grace and mercy because they couldn't measure up. It was an objective standard. This is how good you have to be, right? You have to be this tall to get on this ride, right? It's very clear. This is how tall you have to be. This is how good you have to be to to earn God's favor. It's immediately obvious to anyone who's paying attention, I'm not that good. So lacking an objective statement, we're free to just compare very selectively and to feel however we want to feel. Some people end up feeling worse. Right? If you compare yourself, you were here last week, I talked about Finney Kukavira. If you compare yourself to Finney, you end up feeling bad about yourself. But most of us go the other direction. We compare our intentions with other people's actions, and we feel better about ourselves than we should. The law makes it clear, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus, in in the event that the law wasn't clear, Jesus makes it crystal clear in the sermon because he'll say things like, you have heard it said that you should not commit murder. And if you commit murder, you're violating the law. I say, if you get angry, you've already committed murder in your heart. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. And if you commit adultery, you have violated the law. I'm here to tell you that if you look at a person with lust in your heart, you're already guilty of adultery. So Jesus is making it very clear here that we fall short of God's standards and we need desperately his grace and his mercy extended to us. Another thing that he does, and and don't miss this, because some people want to 
some people just write off what Christ is going to say as hopelessly naive and idealistic. Part of what Jesus is doing here is he is, he is explaining to us the way the world should work, the way the world will work when it works. Right? He, is, he is answering the two big questions that we need answered by any great moral leader. What is the good life and what is a good person? And he is giving that to us here, and we cannot ignore this. We cannot dismiss this as being just pie-in-the-sky idealism that doesn't work. This is the way the world is designed to work, and this is the way the world will work when God's will is done. So the last thing I'll say about this before we look at the actual words is just to remind you that Jesus is giving this message to the apostles immediately after they have been selected. Right? He prays, he selects the twelve. This is, this is day one of their orientation as an apostle. Right? This is, this is uh, Christianity 101, the first day of class. We get to listen in. Other people were able to listen in. Jesus gives this message to a much bigger audience than just the twelve. But there is a sense in which this is, uh, this is foundational truth. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus has to uh, overturn just about everything because the default assumptions that we have don't apply. Right? He's got he's to go down to a foundation that he can build on. And that requires him to turn just about everything we think on its ear. And that's what we're going to see him do here as we look uh, at the words that Christ spoke. So I'm reading now out of Luke chapter 6. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. <laughs> you will not hear more radical words from anyone. Right? You will not hear more radical words from a 60s flower child or a Marxist gorilla or anyone than you hear from Jesus in this sermon. Uh, they are shocking. Now, no one else has his depth or balance And we're going to see that as this sermon unfolds. But, uh, wow, he takes a a, a big, bold stand here. Let's look at the four four Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel, eight in Matthew's. We're going to look at the four that Luke gives us. Number one, uh, blessed are the poor. Now, I I frequently will say something like, we could camp here for a long time. Uh, because, in fact, the words are um, so 
rich and deep. And indeed we could. One of the, one of the scholars writing on this passage said, uh, talking about the words of this sermon, said, their wealth is inexhaustible. We cannot plumb their depths. Truly, we are near heaven here. We could spend a long time uh, looking at these words right here. Uh, we could especially spend a long time on this first beatitude because it's so heavily contested. <laughs> there are at least four theories about what it is that Christ means when he says, blessed are the poor. Some say, this means exactly what, you, what it, it sounds like. God favors the poor. God preferences the poor over the wealthy. If you want to know God's heart, go to the poor. And this, this understanding is what fueled uh, a movement in the second half of the 20th century growing out of Latin America called liberation theology. It was sort of a toxic marriage of liberal Christianity and Marxism. And it was an effort to sort of redistribute wealth with, with, a, with the blessing of Jesus. Now, in defense of liberation theology, there's a, there is a case that you can make here. Clearly, God has a heart for the poor. And when we read through the Old Testament, we see it over and over again. You better take care of the widow. You better take care of the orphan. You better fight injustice. You better go to those who are oppressed. That is part of the responsibility of the people of God. Clearly, God has a heart for the poor and the broken. And, and additionally, when we go to the New Testament, it's quite clear. Spiritually speaking, you're better off being poor than rich. It's easier to pull off, right? The rich, it's not that money is evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of trouble, right? Money itself is not evil, but it's powerful and it can lead us down the wrong path. And as Paul makes clear in his letters to Timothy, when we have money, we easily become arrogant and spiritually apathetic. It's the default path of those who have wealth. And, and so we can make that case that there's a little bit of evidence for liberation theology. Now, I think ultimately it's, it's fatally flawed. I don't think that God loves the, the poor more than he loves the wealthy. I think he's more concerned for the poor uh, in their poverty and hardship. And we, again, have got to pay attention to that. But I mean, there's nothing noble about being poor. And, and the, there's a lot of, uh, some people are poor because they've given everything they have away in order to care for people. We need to care for those people who do that. But some people are poor because they're lazy. And furthermore, I mean, the ultimate goal isn't poverty. Jesus became poor for us. Jesus humbled himself. But he's not poor now. He, he descended to the depths of 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 poverty in one sense. But God has highly exalted him, right? And, and crowned him with many crowns. I mean, so, so I, I think that the liberation theologians are, are, are it's, a, it's a noble movement, but it moves in the wrong direction. I don't buy that theory. There's a second theory that says when Jesus says, poor, blessed are the poor, he's talking specifically about those people who have become poor in order to follow him. 
Right? He's looking at 12 disciples. Some of them, you know, you just left your, your fishing boats in order, to be, in order to be with me. So blessed are you for doing that, for making that decision. And, and in defense of this argument, we can look at what Jesus says to the rich young ruler, right? When he says, what must I do to gain eternal life? He says, take everything you have, sell it, give your money to the poor. And uh, this, this fueled a movement that begins with the Desert Fathers, and this is the group that gave us the seven deadly sins, and it will sort of stay in prominence throughout the Middle Ages where people essentially said, if you're really serious, if you're serious about following God, you will give everything up and live as simple life as you can in order to, to, to give all your time and attention uh, to spiritual things. Uh, I think there's truth here, but I don't think that's what Christ is saying. There's a third theory that says, when he says, blessed are the poor, he's announcing that now that he has shown up, everybody is blessed, even the have-nots, right? Blessed is everybody now that the kingdom of God is unfolding in front of you, okay? I'm not in that camp either. I'm in a fourth view that says that the way the people would have heard this, the way his first audience would have heard this is Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who recognize their, their brokenness and their cosmic poverty before God and their huge need for God's favor and grace. Blessed are those people. And, and I, I move in this direction because of the way the word poverty is often used in the Old Testament, especially by Isaiah, but most prominently because this is the way Matthew summarizes it. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Second, beatitude. Uh, blessed are you who hunger now. Uh, Matthew will say, blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness and Again, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's sh- shocking. Blessed are those who hunger. Who says that? I mean, I suppose today some people will say, blessed are you who hunger now. You're on a diet. You're trying to get ready for spring break. Look good in a swimsuit, right? You're out ahead of the rest of us. Okay. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness is describing people who are passionate about seeking God. And people in the first century would understand what that was like in ways that we generally don't. Because, right, we're not going without food and we're not going without water. Kenneth Bailey, a um, recently retired uh, professor who spent his entire professional career as a scholar and professor in the Middle East. He's an American, but he, he lived there 40, 45 years. And the focus of his uh, academic and professional life was on the, the teaching of Jesus, the parables, and sort of understanding all these things in the context of Middle Eastern culture. And uh, he has, he's, I was reading one of his books, and he talked on this particular passage, he talked about going out into the desert on an excursion. And I, I don't know, but I have a friend who has led these Middle Eastern excursions. He'll take a dozen uh, Palestinians and a dozen Israelis and will go out on camels into the desert for a, for a two-week um, sort of let's see whether or not we can figure out how to get along a little bit better 
exercises. And, he, and my friend, Salim, says, you know, we've got 12 people from both sides, 12 Palestinians, 12 Israelis, and 12 camels. And he says, the, the thing that helps us is that they're more scared of the camels than they are of each other. So that's, that's how we get out there. And he says, and we've got to get along because if we don't cooperate, we will die. He goes, that's just a given. The desert doesn't give uh, any ground to people to be foolish and stupid. And Meyer, or Kenneth Bailey, said he went out on in one of these excavations and that their, one of their two main water uh, jugs broke. And he goes, we're two days out, and it's 110 degrees, there's no shade, and it's a day and a half to get to the next water source. And he said, I'm here to tell you, you do not know how thirsty you can get and how, how miserable you can be and how sweet water can taste, how much you can just be consumed with thirsting after something. And he goes, that I've never done for God. This is just my, or this is Meyer's confession. I've never done that. But here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The third beatitude. Blessed are you who weep now. Right? And for the record, this is not blessed are you who um, are frustrated because it's still snowing in Chicago and you're that mad. Uh, blessed are you when there's no good parking, uh, and uh, blessed are you when, you know, you pull a shoulder muscle playing paddle, uh, it, you know, y- your flight is late. Again, all these sort of first world problems that we get so frustrated with. No, this is, blessed are you who weep now, because your heart is broken by the things that break the heart of God, and you're frustrated by a world of injustice and pain and suffering. And you just, it just makes you, it makes you sick. And you long for a world in which people get along and care for each other. And there is no suffering like we see. Blessed are you who weep now. And then finally, the fourth. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Okay, so it's not because you're a jerk to them and so they're a jerk to you. I mean, it's because of... The Son of Man, because of the way you have lived, because of your, your decision to lean into the vision and values of the kingdom of God, blessed are you when, you when you struggle and suffer that way, because, and this is where this whole thing pivots, right? This is what you have to pay attention to, because great is your reward in heaven. Men and women, eternity changes everything. Eternity changes everything. You cannot understand Christ's life. You cannot understand his teaching. You cannot understand his call to his disciples. You cannot understand what he is calling us to do if you are not thinking about forever. It simply doesn't make sense. Imagine Jesus saying to his followers, hey, I'm starting a new religion. Here's the deal. Follow me and I can promise you um, that you'll be miserable, that you'll be broke, that you will be uh, hungry, that you'll be persecuted. And that's how it'll go until you die. And then it'll end. 
who's in. It, it, it's a non-starter. It doesn't make any sense. The Christian life doesn't make any sense without the resurrection. Right? If Christ didn't conquer the grave, then the Romans beat him down. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, right, then Nietzsche's right. right? Don't, don't sacrifice. Don't serve other people. Go for power. Force your will. Get what you want. Right? If, if Christ didn't conquer death, do not follow Jesus. But if he did, then everything changes. If you're going to live forever, and what happens next depends upon how you live today, then you would be a fool to not live today differently. Because of eternity. That's that's the only way the pieces of this puzzle are going to begin to fit together. We have got to live today in light of forever. We have to be asking ourselves, what am I going to do with my life? My one and only life that is going to matter in light of eternity. When I meet God, what am I going to wish I had done? And then do it. Because you are going to live forever. And how we live today shapes what follows. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's particularly hard to sort of hold on to this idea. Because we live in a, we live in a culture that is so the opposite. Right? We live in a world, in a culture, let me be clear. We live in a culture that is focused on the here, not the hereafter. And there's a variety of ways that we see this, right? One would be the debt levels that we carry. Personally, city, state, you know, national debt. Debt is, is a decision to say, uh, most of the time, not always, but debt is often a decision to say, uh, I am willing to suffer in the future to get what I want right now. I'm willing to leverage the future. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to, to sort of take from future benefit for immediate gratification. Not always, but that's often what debt is. And what Christ is calling us to is the opposite, right? To, to suffer, to serve, to go to the end of the line, to give up in order to receive in heaven something that's greater. This is, we live in a culture where, I, I looked it up this week, 4% of people reach the age of 65 in a position to retire according to the standards that they want to retire at. 4% are saving for retirement. The goal here is to look past retirement, right? I mean, who cares about your 401k if you're going to live for the next 10 million years? Think about the next 10 million years. But, but we live in a culture that focuses on the moment. We see this also with our obsession with youth. Right? We have a youth culture. That's, that is technically an oxymoron. Culture is to be passed down. It's the wisdom of the older people passing down to the younger and helping them live in such a way that life works over time. We have a youth culture. <laughs> we, 
we don't have young people looking at older people to figure out how to make life work. We have older people looking at younger people saying, I want to be like you. Right? And, and, and so we see that in a variety of ways. Some of them are just sort of cosmetic, but cosmetics and cosmetic surgery. And, and all of that, to, I, everybody over the age of 25 wants to be, look younger than they are. Right? Because to be old is to be close to death. And nobody wants to think about death, which is another part of our culture that is really odd. Now, it's a little bit different today. It's a little better than 20 years ago. The hospice movement has changed a lot of this. But for a long time, nobody was around anybody dying except the trained professionals. Nobody nobody had been in the presence of somebody who had taken their last breath. That was all back, done behind closed doors, and you didn't see it. And it's so different than, the, the, than all of history up until really recent time. But we are so focused on the moment that we're not looking ahead. It used to be every time you would walk to church on Sunday morning, you'd walk through the cemetery, right? Because that's where people were buried. You were reminded every week, I'm going to end up here, right? And now we don't have that. We live in a culture that is focused on the, the the here, not the hereafter. And here's what you have to understand. <laughs> the teaching of Jesus will not make any sense if you're in it for the here. Find someone else to follow. It will not work well for you. But if you believe that there is a resurrection, that we're going to live forever, then that changes everything. Eternity changes everything, and it desperately needs to change the way we live today. Many people spend more time thinking about retirement. Many people spend more time thinking about a two-week vacation than they spend thinking about and planning for eternity. We need to live today in light of forever. Uh, I I have, uh, for, for 20 years held on to three ideas to try and help me think this way. The first idea is that life is short. And it is. If, if you're my age or older, you know that it is. If you're, if you're 20 and younger, you don't get that it is. All I can say to you if you're 20 and younger is, <clears throat> think about how long summer break was when you were in kindergarten and first grade. Right? It went forever. And my guess is that that's not the way last summer felt, that it felt a lot shorter than that. Well, here's the deal. It just keeps getting shorter and shorter. (laughs) Life picks up speed. It's shocking how quickly it goes by. And eventually we're like, I can't believe. Jerry and I have been asked, to help a number of young, we've been asked to mentor a number of young um, senior pastor couples. So, <laughs> I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago when I was getting the calls, being invited, because I was one of the young people, to be invited to these things, to be, you know, cared for by the old people. <laughs> well, when I got this phone call, I thought, huh, we're now them. We're, that's how we're viewed. It's shocking how quickly this happens. Life is short. Two, eternity is not. Right? 
eternity is not short. It's hard for us to grasp eternity. You know, there's a bunch of little pithy statements. Eternity is, you know, 30 minutes of aerobics. Eternity is uh, the second hour of Monopoly. Eternity is uh, listening to a six-year-old rehearse the plot of a movie. None of those things come close to doing it. I have a professor, friend, who's written, I think, like 2,000 pages on how we're to understand time and eternity and God's relationship to time and how all that works together. You know, I don't understand any of it. It, 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 here's, Here's the deal, right? This life is short, and what follows will go on forever. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We're going to live forever. And so only a fool doesn't ask, how do I live my life, my one and only short life, that will matter in light of eternity? And we either adopt a sort of pay-me-now or a pay-me-later philosophy. The third point that I hold on to Life is short, eternity is not. The third one is opportunity is now. The way it's described is we have one life, after that comes death and judgment. There is an audit. We are assessed for what we've done with what we've been given. And we can't sort of raise our grade after it's time to put the pencils down, turn in the test, and we are graded. There are, I know this is, this is shocking and very uh, unsettling to many, our, our, our eternal destiny does not hinge upon how well we have done, right? Again, it, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. We don't contribute to it, don't add to it. But half the parables are making the point that, that, that we are rewarded at different levels in heaven based on what kind of stewards we've been with the opportunities that we've been given. And Paul makes this point in Philippians 4 when he says, I appreciate the fact that when no one else was supporting me financially, you did. And he goes, what most excites me is not that you gave me money, I'm sort of indifferent to that, but what has been credited to your eternal account. Right? The opportunity to make a difference for other people and for ourselves is today. And we are instructed to do that. Do not store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We are instructed to use the opportunities that we've been given to store up treasures in heaven. And, and you will not understand the teaching of Christ if you don't understand that he is looking beyond the grave. It's... It's what he is doing, and it changes everything. Eternity changes everything. And so we need to live today in light of the fact that we are going to live forever. And to ask, what am I going to do with my life, my one and only life, that will matter in light of eternity? I want to invite uh, those who are going to help distribute the communion elements to come forward now. And as they do, let me say just a few words to set up this table again. First, uh, this is an open communion table. Uh, You are invited. If Christ is your Savior and Lord, you are invited to come to this table right now and to partake. You do not need to be a member of this 
local congregation, what you need to do is to prayerfully examine your heart as we are instructed in Scripture and to prepare um, to come here. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. Let me also just say again, the words that we get from Christ are, are high and lofty and call us to hunger and thirst after righteousness and call us to, to take our, our service and our living and our game to another level, I want to remind you again that um, salvation is by the finished work of Christ, and that's what we celebrate every time we come to this table. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their brokenness, their spiritual bankruptcy, their cosmic poverty, their complete need for a Savior to save them from their sin. We come here acknowledging our brokenness, not on our own merit, but we come in confidence in the finished work of Christ. So let me pray for us, and then we will prepare to come to this table. Lord God Almighty, we come as broken people. It is easy for us to be proud and arrogant and apathetic, um, but when we see things a little more clearly, when, when we hear the words of Christ and have uh, the wisdom of, of God shining truth in front of us, we realize uh, how misguided we are and how selfish and broken we are. We confess that. And we come now. Uh, to this table, to confess that it is the work of Christ and Christ alone um, through which we can come before you. And we pray um, that you would guide us, Spirit of God, as we uh, are softened, as we see things, as we see ourselves against the standards of the law, we see ourselves uh, against the standards of our, of our sin and not the favorable comparisons we're inclined to do. We see our brokenness and we see the glory of Christ. Uh, Prepare us in that way as we come to remember again the death of Christ. Amen.